Hey y'all, Cable here, and this week's show brought to you by one of the most iconic ranches in all of Texas, not only for the Longhorn cattle, but also as the birthplace of exotic hunting. That's right, the Wyo Ranch headquarters is keeping the tradition and history of the iconic Wyo Ranch alive today. They've got phenomenal axis deer hunting, also great herds of fallow and psyca deer, and then if you want to go after something more exotic, like an eland or a kudu, uh, they've got you covered there. Check it out. It's the Y.O. Ranch headquarters, located right there in the heart of the Texas Hill Country, and like I said, absolutely phenomenal place, incredible lodging. The food is, it'll blow you away, let me tell you. It's the Y.O. Ranch headquarters. Check it out at yoranchheadquarters.com. And she left me the whiskey, takes me to the rodeo grounds. Where the cowboys think I'm handy, I'm Bandy the Rodeo Clown. Good morning, good morning, good morning, sweet, beautiful Texas and beyond. Mo Bandy the Rodeo Clown. Kicking things off for us on Dallas Safari Club's Lone Star Outdoor Show, brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. I'm Cable Smith, and it is a real treat to be here talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you today. Thank you so much for being here, as we've got a stellar show lined up for you. We'll be all over the place. Got a bunch of great topics to get into this morning, so you know what to do by now. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old thermos. Maybe, just maybe, you've washed it out since last duck season. If you haven't, it's no big deal. Still got that uh, build-up of years' worth of, of old, stale, burnt coffee. <laughs> maybe even a little bit of Grandpappy's old cough syrup that you throw in there with your coffee on those biting, cold, cold December mornings. Uh, but whatever the case, pour yourself another cup. Grab that stool. Pull it a little closer to the campfire because we've got a ton to get into. And off the top, we're going to talk some elk hunting, some elk conservation, and some upcoming events that you might want to be a part of when it comes to Rocky Mountain elk, a species that I am absolutely obsessed with. Uh, Michael Gukins, the senior director of RMEF Texas, will be here. Of course, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is is a nationwide organization uh, but we've got a good foothold here in Texas, which might surprise you since we really don't have any huntable elk here in the Lone Star State. But that doesn't mean there aren't quite a few of us who are passionate about elk and conservation here in Texas that uh, are involved with this great organization. So we'll talk a little bit about that, some of the events that they have coming up. Next, we'll check in with our old friend Brian Davenport of Finn and Fowl Outfitters. He joins us from... Anahuac, Texas. Anahuac is a place that is synonymous with phenomenal blueing teal hunting during the early teal season, as well as Texas alligator hunting. Uh, Brian outfits for both of them. He'll tell us how the uh, recent flooding has affected conditions there on the coast. We'll get into a little rice production, what it means for blueing teal. Um, so a lot of good stuff coming up with Brian. And if you didn't know, our Texas alligators are absolutely thriving. So great numbers of big lizards on the Texas coast right now, actually all over Texas, but specifically on the coast, there's over 500,000 of them. Uh, we'll get into all that with Brian. And then what are we doing after that? Oh, yeah, Brandy Reeder, assistant commander 
for our Texas Parks and Wildlife Game Warden Division. She'll be here, and we're going to get into the dark, deceptive world of cheating in fishing tournaments. Folks are still doing it, even though they've got to take polygraph tests. It makes no sense to me. Uh, but every year, there's multiple people who are busted and charged with felonies for trying to cheat their fellow anglers out of money, notoriety, and achievement. So uh, we're going to get into that and what Texas Parks and Wildlife has done to help circumvent cheating in uh, in fishing tournaments, both saltwater and freshwater, specifically bass fishing is where most of it occurs. But we'll get into that with Brandy. And then by a listener's request, we will wrap up today's broadcast by diving into the history and distribution of feral hogs throughout Texas and the southern U.S. How'd they get here? Uh, who brought them here? Were they introduced or just escaped? Uh, all that stuff. It's, it's really fascinating. And, and in Texas specifically, there's three major introduction periods and reasons why those periods occurred. So we'll break it down with retired Texas Parks and Wildlife biologist Rick Taylor. Uh, he has written the most comprehensive piece on Texas feral hogs that I've ever come across. And I'm looking forward to uh, picking his brain here in just a little bit. Anyway, that's what's on the docket for today. It's going to be a good one. A couple other things to mention. Don't forget our July photo of the month contest is rocking and rolling. Accepting submissions right now. Send in your best hunting or fishing image for a chance to win a Trophy Ridge React Pro bow sight. That's right, all you bow hunters out there. These things retail for upwards of $250. So send in your best photo to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. And then our 12 monthly winners, once again, will square off at the end of the year for a chance to hunt trophy black buck or axis deer with me down at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas. Another awesome grand prize hunt package brought to you by Coons Canyon Ranch. Let's go ahead and do a quick giveaway here. I've got some awesome new stuff from our friends over at Bison Coolers, including the brand new Tumbler. Uh, this is... I mean, it's what I use to keep my coffee hot every day or cold if I want iced coffee. And we will send one of these to, let's see, it's actually a 30-ounce tumbler. We'll send one of these bison tumblers and a bison coolers cap to the third person to text in the word bison. That's bison to 214-289-7807. That's bison to 214-289-7807. You can win the brand-new tumbler and bison coolers cap as well. Uh, let's take a break. Up next, we're talking all things Rocky Mountain Elk with Michael Gukins of RMEF Texas only on DSC's Lone Star Outdoor Show. And I can hear his spurs a jangling, the chimes of a slapping tag, as his horse lopes up a ridge with the moonlight on his back. Cable Smith here for Deerview Windows. As a whitetail hunter, nothing is more frustrating than poor visibility in a deer blind. It can flat ruin a hunt. At Deerview Window Company, they manufacture windows solely for the use in deer stand and deer blinds. All of their windows and doors can be custom made to fit your specific openings. Or you can select from standard sizes, from hinged windows to sliding windows and everything in between. Visit DeerviewWindows.com to determine which style window is best for your deer blind. Plus, you'll get a free quote. Deerview Windows, where visibility matters. Cable Smith here for Lone Star Ag Credit. We all know land is a limited commodity. Let's face it, they're not making any more of it, but everybody wants it. Whether that's to build a house, hunt deer, or run cattle, 
All that Lone Star Ag Credit to help make that land your land. They've been doing it since 1917. For more information, visit LoneStarAgCredit.com to let them help you finance your piece of Texas today. Hi, this is Fred Eichler with Easton Bowhunting and Predator Nation. Thanks for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. September in the Rockies, the bull elk bugles ring. Their sounds fill the canyons, it's like they're trying to sing. Fall winds blowing winter, and the snow's falling deep. It's time of Rich Fire's the name of that one there from Dave Watson, bringing us back on Dallas Safari Club's Lone Star Outdoor Show, brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. I'm Cable Smith. And we are rocking and rolling, about to talk some elk hunting, some elk conservation, and who knows what else. I mean, gosh, September archery season is right around the corner. I'm sure plenty of y'all out there, uh, if you didn't draw a tag, maybe you've acquired a landowner permit. Uh, maybe you're doing an October or even uh, November rifle hunt. But elk season will be here before we know it. And so we're going to get into one of my absolute favorite animals to pursue here uh, in just a second. But first, this segment of the show is brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation, we'd love to have you get plugged in with this great group of like-minded folks who are passionate about big game conservation, education, and hunters' rights. And to do so, check us out at biggame.org. Um, okay, let's go ahead and bring on our first guest today. He actually represents the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. He is our senior regional director for the state of Texas. It's my pleasure to welcome Michael Gookins to the show. I'm glad to have the opportunity. Obviously, we are thrilled to have RMEF Texas on board the show. Um, for folks who aren't familiar with the RMEF, though, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is essentially like, um, for folks who know what Ducks Unlimited is, it's a conservation organization, much like DU, but for elk. And it's been around since 1984, so uh, gosh, over 30 years now. Yeah, we're uh, a nonprofit wildlife conservation organization. Uh, our primary focus is elk, but anytime we do any uh, public access work or habitat improvement or anything, it obviously helps all the critters in that in that area. So it's not just elk, but that's where our focus is. Sure, well, and that's the beauty about conservation. You know, uh, folks want to focus on one species, but all the animals benefit. So. Um, Great stuff there, and I believe it was founded in, wasn't it Montana? Yes, in Montana, uh-huh. okay. by, by four elk hunters that decided they they needed to do something to ensure the future of elk. Uh-huh. And how many members strong are we now? Uh, we're just at 220,000 across the nation. Uh-huh. And as far as Texas goes, it's kind of a, um, a unique animal because Texas has a lot of elk hunters, but we don't really have, you know, huntable populations of elk per se. I mean, there are some out west in the in the mountains out there, uh, but they're considered exotics in Texas anyway. Um, so how, what has it been like for you trying to, you know, get the RMEF going here in Texas in a state where, like we said, we don't, we don't really have a native elk herd? Uh, yeah, that's true. And, and the downside is that elk, uh, as you mentioned, they're not a managed game animal in the state of Texas. So uh, we have some challenges there. Uh, however, we do have uh, a membership of uh, a little over 8,000 in the state of Texas, wow. and we have uh, we hold fundraising events in 
uh, about 15 different uh, areas each year, and that funds from that goes to part of it goes to uh, our national uh, efforts and projects. Uh, but some of it comes back to the state, and uh, we can't do habitat work really and stuff in the state. Uh, again, because elk is not a managed species, so we we spend a lot of our money in the state going to uh, youth improvement. It's our hunting heritage program. Uh, we try to get youth involved in all kinds of outdoor activities. We support the Texas Youth Hunter uh, Program, 4-H, uh, ROTC, uh, local community and county uh, archery clubs or shooting clubs, uh-huh. all those sorts of youth involvement activities. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's great because, like like we said, if you can't go back into habitat conservation here in Lone Star State, then, um, you know, those youngsters are the future hunters. As far as acre, acres of, of elk habitat conserved, uh, last time I checked, it was well over 6 million um, that the RMEF has, has been responsible for. Uh, yeah, in, in our history, which is now 33 years, uh, we have conserved or enhanced uh, 6.8 million acres. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. We just started uh, a couple of years ago uh, really focusing uh, a lot of our efforts on public access to, to land. And uh, in the last couple of years, uh, we have conserved through conservation easements and the like, public access onto uh, almost 800,000 acres. Wow, that's awesome. As a, as a public land hunter, I mean, that's that's incredible. And I hope that just continues in the future. Uh, one other thing, though, that the RMEF is, is very uh, involved with is reintroduction. And we've seen places where, you know, elk historically had lived but were wiped out. Uh, Kentucky, for example, is, is a, a great success story where um, elk have been reintroduced and are thriving and and man there's some big bulls in kentucky these days yeah and that's that's uh, another one of our focus areas the uh, kentucky project like you said has been just tremendous there are over 14,000 elk now free-ranging in kentucky and in fact that is uh, our primary herd that we go to when we work to introduce elk in another state the most recent and closest uh, state was missouri we just uh reintroduced elk there over the last uh, four years and uh, we've got a that makes that's our eighth state where we have reintroduced elk over our our history Mm -hmm. and uh, we've got a couple of others that are working with us and doing the research to determine uh, if they have uh, appropriate habitat there uh, and public ground and stuff where they can where we could reintroduce those. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let me ask you this. On a personal level, where is your favorite place or state to elk hunt? (laughs) Any of them. (laughs) Uh, I've hunted in in Montana and Colorado and uh, going back to Colorado again this year. Oh, awesome. I'll be going to Colorado too, chasing uh, bulls here during archery season, so I'm I'm pumped. No doubt about that. Now, and are you a bow or rifle hunter? Uh, Rifle. I've I've just started... uh, Working with a bow, and uh-huh. so uh, maybe in another year or two, get some experience uh-huh. uh, and some practice under my belt. So are you going in October or? Yeah, going in October. Awesome. Uh, I drew in for the uh, first rifle season. Cool. Awesome, awesome. Well, we certainly wish you the best of luck there. Um, what uh, What would you say has been the most memorable elk hunt you've been on over the years? 
Uh, I guess Montana about, no, probably about four or five years ago now, uh, Buddy and I went and uh, had a great time. Uh, he did get lost. <laughs> but he got found. Trying to come down at night. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we finally had dinner about midnight that night. Oh. Uh, but it was a, a great experience. Uh, still looking to get my first one, though. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Well, uh, let's talk about some of the upcoming events on the Army of Texas calendar. Um, well, I know there's a banquet going on this weekend. Uh, yeah, uh, we have a, a banquet in Conroe. Uh, Saturday, doors open at 5.30. Uh, then uh, about two weeks later, on the 30th, we're in Alvin, Texas, uh, south side of Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, August the 6th is Dimebox, Texas, just outside of Giddings, Texas. And uh, the 13th of August in the Dallas area for our North uh, Texas chapter. And on our last event uh, this year, we'll be in Beaumont on September the 1st. Awesome. So I'd love to have everybody come out. Yeah, yeah. And where can folks find more info on, you know, if they want to buy tickets or or uh, find out exactly where the events are as far as you know location and stuff. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> probably the easiest way is to go to our national website rmef.org, and on the homepage you can select Texas, uh, and then go to Texas, and it'll have all of our events there. Uh, or I can give them uh, my phone number. Yeah, sure. If you if you want to give that or the office number or whatever you're comfortable with, sure. Uh, office number is eight three zero nine three five four seven five four. Love to hear from anybody that's interested in either attending an event or volunteering to help us uh, organize our next ones. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, and like you said, uh, what fifteen chapters, eight thousand members strong here in Texas. Uh, so con- you know, continuing to grow, and uh, I encourage everyone to get plugged in with Army of Texas. And through volunteering, and, and I've been on, you know, with Ducks Unlimited or Delta Waterfowl for years and years and years. And the cool thing is, is all the people that are volunteering, they're just like you. So they're passionate about conservation and hunting. And so who knows, you might uh, end up in the woods someday with, with those folks on your committee. Absolutely. And we're always looking for volunteers. We have about 250 volunteers that help us with our 15 events each year. And we're always looking to grow that great opportunity well hey michael we certainly appreciate it good luck in colorado thank you much good luck to you too all right take care you bet all right there he goes michael gukins the senior regional director for the rmef texas uh that segment by the way proudly brought to you by port aransas texas with miles and miles of coastline the deep blue waters of the gulf of mexico uh, amazing saltwater fishing both inshore and offshore and fabulous dining port ranzas truly is the gem of the texas coast so come play texas island style for more info visit portaranzas.org let's knock out a quick break when we come back we'll head down to anawak texas get geared up for early teal and alligator season it's our old friend brian davenport of finn and foul outfitters you're listening to dsc's lone star outdoors show When we were raising cane and swapping songs. 
Howdy friends, Cable Smith here, and many of you have seen my pictures throughout the last hunting season of my Custom 7 mag. That rifle was built by Horizon Firearms. Horizon Firearms is a custom rifle builder here in Texas, located in College Station, and they specialize in extremely accurate custom rifles designed exactly the way you want them. Give them a call at 979-229-4664 or check them out at horizonfirearms.com. LSC Trailer Sales offers a full line of utility trailers, from small single-axle trailers to heavy equipment trailers, ATV trailers, car haulers, landscape trailers, cargo trailers, truck beds, and more. They can special order a custom trailer to fit your needs and have the ability to customize standard models in-house. LSC Trailer Sales is here to assist you with any questions that you have about trailers. Call 940-566-1133 or visit lsctrailersales.com. That's lsctrailersales.com. Are you looking for the perfect place to send your hunting buddy? To check out Tioga Retrievers. With over 20 years experience, Angie and Tim Becker can provide you with a field champion or a well-rounded hunting companion. Tioga Retrievers takes pride in catering to the needs of each owner and their dog. Conveniently located 45 miles north of DFW in Aubrey, Texas, Tioga Retrievers also offers day training and boarding. Call 940-440-0018 or visit them online at www.tiogaretrievers.com. That's T-I-O-G-A retrievers.com. If you're in the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas, Louisville, Bobcat of Fort Worth, and Bobcat of Longview. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000 today. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Hi, this is Governor Greg Abbott, and I want to thank you for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Somewhere in East Texas, you're out alone. Well, I can't dry your tears on the telephone. The Pride of East Texas, the Lone Star Outdoor Show Zone. Whiskey Myers bringing us back on Dallas Safari Club's Lone Star Outdoor Show, brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. Lonely East Texas Nights is the name of that one. I'm Cable Smith, by the way. Thanks so much for being here with me. It is a pleasure and an honor to be able to uh, talk all things outdoors with you every weekend. So thanks for tuning in as we are all set to talk some early teal and alligator hunting. Uh, with our old friend Brian Davenport. But before we do that, this segment is proudly brought to you by Pulsar, where they continue to set the gold standard in night vision and thermal imaging technology. So if you're overrun by destructive feral hogs on your lease or ranch, or maybe you've got uh, a coyote problem, they're killing all your fawns, well, you know what to do. Go to PulsarNV.com to see their full lineup of night vision and thermal imaging scopes and optics. Check it out, pulsarnv.com. And if you tell them you heard about them here, you can save 20%
off your entire order. Okay, well, let's go ahead and bring on our old friend. Uh, we had the pleasure of hunting uh, the early teal as well as the Texas alligator season with him last September. We're going to do it again this fall, and to say that I'm ecstatic about it is a gross understatement. It's my pleasure to welcome back to the show Brian Davenport of Finn and Foul Outfitters. Hey, it's great to be back, man. Good to hear from you, man. Yeah, always a pleasure. So, uh, first of all, how in the heck are you? I know, man, y'all have had a lot of rain and some really bad flooding in the Houston area, you know, surrounding areas down there. Uh, Things back to normal now? Things are back to normal now, yeah. We had a pretty pretty rough April and May, for sure, and a little bit of June. you know, put a put a bunch of water in our marshes and a bunch of water in our bays, but now it's the yards are shriveling up, and ready for water again. So you know, typical Texas weather. You know, if you don't mm. like it today, wait till tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, well, so yeah, we're, we're getting back to normal for sure. Well, I'm sure all that rain, you know, will have a profound effect on uh, two of your favorite September pastimes, and of course, we're talking about early teal hunting and, and alligator hunting, um, which I'm sure. You know the habitat has to be looking pretty good for this coming September. Oh yeah, yeah. You know the one thing that we had a, I guess March was the end of March was pretty dry for us. So some of the rice farmers got their crops in before all the rain started, and then actually some of them actually did what they call mudding their crops in during all that rain. So we have some rice that's going to come off or be the first cut be cut probably in the next two and a half, three weeks mm-hmm. towards the end of July. And then a few of our farms, uh, they won't get cut until, you know, late August, right before teal season. So we're going to have some green rice fields, you know, for teal hunting, and we'll have some fresh cut rice fields as well. But, uh, you know, across the area, uh, the rice base definitely went up this year. So that's always, that's always a good and pretty much, uh, Probably eighty-five, ninety percent of the farmers do do a second crop, so hmm. that's what what the the teal really love and stay for is that rice crop. But uh, you know our marshes are were flushed out real good. Widgeon grass is going crazy. All the good aquatics are doing good. Um, you know I hate to say this, but really probably in, in another couple of weeks it wouldn't hurt if we got three or four inches down there just to kind of keep things leveled off, but. It's been so hot and windy here that, uh, you know, the evaporation level has just been crazy. But mm-hmm. we're, we're used to that. Usually if we get something in late August or 1st of September, kind of seems like the weather pattern is getting a little bit back to normal, you know, from the old days when we used to get real summer showers and stuff. Just don't need the monsoons. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that see, people obviously are – aware of the great teal hunting on the Texas coast, but I think there's kind of a misconception there. You're not actually hunting the saltwater like you would for, you know, during big duck season for, uh, you know, the big groups of redheads and pintail and widgeon that, that come to the Texas coast. This is more uh, in those, in that rice production area, uh, which, you know, sometimes can be, I don't know, how many miles from the coast are you really hunting? Uh, the rice starts about probably as a crow flies, maybe about four miles inland from East Bay, you know, uh-huh. you know, and it goes all the way up north of 10, you know, but, uh, most of our hunting is centered between the top of the high ground of the marsh and just south of I-10. 
Okay. Is uh is one of the rice you know production areas, and as you seen last year, you know those those teal when they decide they want to come into a rice field, there's no circling and looking. I mean, you see them, and the next thing you know, you're shooting. They're they're on top of you. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, that was uh that was an insane hunt. I mean, so much shooting that I just put the uh, the gun down at one point and grabbed the the video camera and just kind of took it all in. Um, it was a Oh, and that was my first time teal hunting down on the coast, so it was uh, better than advertised. You guys have a, a great operation, and oh, there's 7.5 million blue-winged teal. They're really doing a lot of work reproducing. Um, you know, we yeah. hunters take a lot of them, and then they fly uh, as far south as Argentina, Chile, South America. But back to that number, 7.5 million blue-winged teal, uh, over half of them end up in Texas in September. Uh, some of them stay all winter, but... Um, so we have over half of them come through Texas. So you're looking at, you know, uh, well over 3 million birds coming. Wow. Down well, hopefully about half of those will stop in those rice fields that, that you're aware <laughs> of over there in our area. We'll, yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure that they don't go any further South. Yeah. Well, um, uh, it, it truly is something that everyone needs to put on their bucket list. If they haven't already, uh, Texas teal hunting on the coast is, is, uh, absolutely phenomenal wing shooting. And, you know, as far as fin and fowl outfitters go, um, you guys take it a step further and offer alligator hunting, which, you know, these gators basically share the same habitat, the same area as these teal. Uh, and and the American alligator uh, is doing quite well in Texas. We had your friend Shannon Tompkins uh, from the Houston Chronicle on a couple weeks ago. You, you gave us a heads up oh, on, yeah. on a story. What a great guy. Yeah. And he mentioned there's over 500,000 gators just on the Texas coast alone. Uh, so the highest population we've seen uh, in, in well over a century as far as Texas alligators go. Yeah, yeah, and I think they only issue somewhere around 25, 2,700 tags a year. Mm-hmm. So yeah. on a half a million alligators, they're just barely scraping the surface there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, at some point they're going to have to reevaluate that uh, if the, because the numbers just keep going up. Um, and I don't know what carrying capacity is for alligators. You know, we'll leave that to biologists. But you'd think if they keep issuing the same number of permits and we keep seeing an explosion in alligator population, you know, it just makes sense. But, you know, you put me on a couple really nice gators and, and you do that for all your hunters. What's the key to, first of all, finding a good spot? So you say, okay, we need to put a bait here. What are you looking for that's a determining factor that tells you where you need to, you know, hang a bait? Well, you know, we're fortunate again, like I told you guys last year, that we have that ranch that's adjacent to the Anahuac National Wildlife Refuge. So we have Oyster Bayou that makes the boundary line between us and the refuge. And we've probably got six miles of frontage along that bayou. So, and it's a it's a main thoroughfare. It's all the little guts and stuff that come out of the marsh feed into Oyster Bayou. So... Mm-hmm. And we've got, you know, we've got our spots for whatever reason, whether it's where a little contributory dumps into Oyster Bayou and we're right there on the point where we know a lot of big gators travel in and out of. Uh, but we do have our spots that just, you know, that, that, that what we called the quail slew line last year that was, I think we caught four alligators off of them. And they were all eight, eight and a half foot or better. And I think one was a little over 10. But uh, we just have those spots, you know, that, uh, just seem to produce the bigger gators, and and there's spots where we have the uh, you know some big pipe pipe culverts, and those big gators love to get up in those pipe 
culverts. And when we take a big one from there, usually another one will move in his territory once he realizes he's got free roam again, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, – and with all the rain, just it's just made the bait and, and all the stuff they feed on the turtles and everything is blossomed. So they're just in really, really good shape this year. Yeah. Well, and – my understanding and, and biologists will confirm that too, is that, uh, the number one, um, limiting factor on alligator population is big male gators. They're, the, you know, they prey on smaller alligators from the smallest of the small to, you know, uh, it's not, it's not uncommon for uh, a 12 footer to go ahead and just eat a six or eight footer. Well, that's right. Yeah. So that's right. I guess you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, as far as catching them, Brian, why don't you talk about how you actually go about that? You know, you set up basically a hook and line. Um, and one of the interesting things I learned on our hunt was that uh, you try to keep the little gators away, you know, uh, try to keep their ability from actually taking the bait limited by putting it up higher. Um, and that kind of guarantees you that you're going to catch something that's pretty sizable. Yeah. Yeah, we, you know, lots of times we're going to do it again this year. We'll, we'll put out a drip bag, you know, uh, a week or so prior to season with some beef lung in it, uh, you know, to have stuff dripping over the water in the area that we're going to bake to keep the big gators around. They smell that. They're curious. They'll come back. Uh, but, you know, we do it uh, just like they do on swamp people. Uh, you know, state mandates how we bait for them. And uh, we normally, we, we bait the lines in the afternoon with the customers and, and make them a part of the hunt and the baiting as well. And we normally check them the next morning around 9 or 10 o'clock and uh, kind of go from there. Uh, you know, it seems like earlier in the season, it, it just really depends. As, as long as we don't get a crazy cold front in the middle of, of gator season, it stays fairly consistent through the season. But if we get a a good, good push of cold air that kind of knocks the bite down, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, actually, I was looking at the moon phase, and I want to say it's right around the middle of September, right in the middle of gator season, is a full moon. So that's good. So it'll be be working its way up to a full moon, and then you know fading that full moon as gator season ends. So really, the moon is absolutely perfect for this year's season. So excellent. Yeah, we'll be down there for the uh, the last weekend of early teal season. And we'll yeah, that's going to be great. And we're looking forward to that. Yeah, and we'll do the gator hunt again as well. Uh, one of the things that was, I'd say, a little bit unpleasant about gator hunting, and um, and it was the same on you know black bear hunt. They're using a rancid uh, beaver tail, and uh, you guys are using rancid chicken, I believe. Yep, the yeah. funky chicken. <laughs> the sure. funky chicken. That's uh, and we we right. actually we actually inject those chicken quarters with a secret sauce. I can't I can't let that one go on the radio, but um, you yeah. know, and that helps it too. That stuff's dripping out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the stinkier the better. Yeah, for sure, for sure, and it <laughs> definitely is pungent. I don't I don't know. Did we did we did we let you get uh, get your hands on some of that funky chicken last year? Um, Pretty sure you offered, and I politely declined. And said I could. Well, we're going to have to make sure that happens this year. That way, you, I, you can have a hands-on experience. Oh, I had a hands-on experience. I, I when we went to the uh, the processor, uh, you know, I got to uh, sex the gator with my bare finger. So 
That that is right, and, and you you did fall in the wa- almost in the water while you were pulling one in. Which that and that's that was, on film. There's been yeah. uh, thousands of people on Instagram that have had a good laugh at that. So, <laughs> and you guys just laughing in the background with the I think it was a nine and a half foot gator in the water, uh, and I'm sliding down in the water with him. Check your pants moment for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, if I remember right, the second one was down at the Bayou line. And that's the one that surfaced out in the middle of the bayou, which they normally don't do that. They'll stay deep until you get them right up to the to the bank, those big ones. And he, he came right up to the top and showed us his whole body and did a little tail wiggle, and and uh, and it was on from there. Yeah. Well, what uh, what is the preferred method that most of your hunters dispatch the gators with? It's usually handgun, you know, mm-hmm. 90% of the time. I've had... Some guys try to shoot them with bows. That's always interesting. But normally, you know, it's a handgun. Yeah. You know, nine millimeter, forty-four magnum, something like that. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know. Right on. Yeah. I haven't yeah. had uh, too many people want to want to do the uh, the vertebrae stab uh, with a big old Bowie knife. I haven't had any takers on that yet. But. Uh yeah, I'm gonna pass on that <laughs> one as well. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, it's going to be a great season. Like you said, habitat conditions are uh, excellent. All the the uh, late spring rains that you guys had. Um, and if folks want to uh, to look you up, they can find you, obviously, on Facebook. And then what is your website? Uh, com. Mm-hmm. And you all have got a lodge right there. Uh, on yes, sir. Right there in Oak Island. And uh, we sleep about 30 folks. Got a full staff. Cooking for us, a lighted fishing pier for all the redfish and trout finder you want to catch, and maybe the possibly the prettiest sunsets in southeast Texas. No doubt, no doubt. And I brought the wife and kids with me last year. You know, it's uh, oh we, yeah, we had a, a family friendly. Mm-hmm. To have y'all back again this year. So. We are looking forward to it. We certainly appreciate it, Brian. Well, if we don't talk to you before, then we'll see you right there at uh, the end of early teal season. Hey, sounds great, man. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Enjoy your show. All right, there he goes. Our old buddy Brian Davenport from Finn and Fowl Outfitters. Uh, always great having him on the show. That segment, by the way, brought to you by Costa Sunglasses. You can go to CostaDelmar.com and customize your own pair of polarized, top-of-the-line glasses any way you want. They've got, gosh, a jillion different varieties of frames, styles, and lenses it's all I wear, whether I'm on the water or just recreating uh, with the family. But it truly does make a difference as far as seeing what's below the surface. Costa, see what's out there. Let's take a break. Uh, up next, we'll dive into the dark and shady underworld of cheating in tournament fishing. Uh, our Texas Parks and Wildlife Game Warden Assistant Commander Brandy Reader joins us next only on DSC's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith here for Wildcat Lending, where they offer 90% investor financing for investors flipping houses. That's purchase price plus renovation. Unlike borrowing from a bank, they offer great terms and fast closing. There's no income verification, and you deal directly with the owners. Wildcat Lending is lending money all over Texas, and no other lenders can compete. Call 972-525-4777 or visit wildcatlending.com today. Wildcat Lending, hard money made easy. 
If you're looking for a thermal hog hunt near DFW, then Three Curl Outfitters has you covered. Offering fully guided thermal hunts just minutes south of Dallas, guides scout daily to put you on the bacon. Using thermal imaging technology to hunt feeders, crop fields, and river bottoms, you get unlimited hogs and no kill fees. Visit www.3curl.com. Also offering corporate hunts and food and lodging available by request. Book at 3curl.com or call 214-455-0940. Hi, I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Please keep buying your Polaris products from us. Send us your friends, your neighbors, all your hunting buddies, and I promise we'll keep giving the best deals on a brand new Polaris in all of Texas. Whether you're looking for a Polaris for work or play, whether you need a regular Ranger or maybe a Ranger Crew, an RZR, they've got an all-new Ace that you need to come test drive. We've also got four-wheelers from a youth model all the way up to the all-new Sportsman 1000. For your Polaris headquarters, Hoffpower's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas is who you need to see all or get on the web and contact today. You can check us out at hpolaris.com. That's H's in Hoffpower, polaris.com. Or you can come see us at Highway 84 West in Gulfway, Texas. And folks, Hoffpower's has been in Central Texas for over 50 years now, and we couldn't have stuck around this long if we were steering you wrong. Howdy, this is Robert Earl Keane, and you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoors Show. Up this morning, before the sun, fixed me some coffee and a honey bun. Jumped in the pickup, gave her the gas, I'm going out to catch a five pound Oh yeah, one of my all-time favorites right there, five pound bass. <laughs> the great Robert Earl Keane bringing us back. On DSC's Lone Star Outdoors show, I'm Cable Smith. Thanks for being here. Thanks to our presenting sponsors, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. It's a real treat to be talking outdoors with you today. Uh, thanks for sharing a part of your weekend, because if y'all don't listen, there's really no point in having a show. Uh, so anyway, we are about to get into really the extremely shady underworld of tournament cheating when it comes to competitive fishing. It's still going on, uh, maybe not as rampant as it once was, but uh, we'll get into it in detail here momentarily. But before we do that, this segment is brought to you by STI Guns. Based out of Georgetown, Texas, they've got a full lineup of 1911 and 2011 style pistols in all manner of calibers. Whether you're looking for a concealed carry weapon or you're into competitive shooting, STI has something for every shooter Check them out at sti-guns.com and go Texan, go STI. Well, uh, let's go ahead and bring on our next guest. Uh, she's been with the Texas Parks and Wildlife Game Warden Department for quite some time. She currently holds the rank of Assistant Commander in charge of Fisheries Law and Administration. It's my pleasure to welcome Brandy Reeder to the show. Thank you. Uh, first of all, thanks for your service to our state, our wildlife, and our hunters and anglers out there. We appreciate it. Well, I thank you for your sentiments. Why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about 
you know, what your responsibilities are as an assistant commander um, and fisheries law administrator. Sure, thank you. Uh, as m- my role, uh, we have we also have other uh, assistant commanders. Uh, we have a boating law administrator, a wildlife law administrator. But specific specifically, my role is to uh, look at our rules and regulations as far as fisheries enforcement goes, and with the assistance of our field staff, our game wardens, determine whether or not there are any enforcement issues present. Uh, to work through the regulatory process through our commission or through the legislature to adjust uh, statutes, Mm -hmm. depending upon any enforcement issues that we encounter or any loopholes that are present, or if we detect any emerging trends from our neighboring states or whatever regarding uh, a tendency towards violations. Okay. And so that kind of is where we want to go this morning. You know, you're hands-on with those regulations um, that would govern, you know, fishing tournaments. And unfortunately, it's sad that outdoorsmen, uh, whom I generally consider as salt-of-the-earth kind of folks, uh, but there's a few bad apples out there who are willing to cheat each other out of money, acknowledgments, and sometimes, you know, even careers. Um, and, and I'll let you kind of talk about some of the stuff that, that you've seen over the years as far as anglers trying to cheat in everything from bass fishing to uh, red fishing tournaments. Absolutely. You know, it's always the the minority that ends up causing these issues. You know, the majority of our recreational anglers and hunters and even our commercial fishermen in general, uh, they try to comply with the regulations. But but as I said, you know, these these rules and regulations end up in in place for the bad actors. And with that, uh, early in my career, I was working as a waymaster, and so I was responsible for measuring fish and uh, determining whether or not they met the requirements both for Parks and Wildlife and for the tournament. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I had only been out of, the, out of the academy maybe six months, and I brought a fish up, and I measured him. He was a redfish, and he measured perfect, 28 inches. And so he was the largest fish of the tournament. So we completed all of our weighing and measuring throughout throughout all the participants. And whenever, it was, whenever the uh, prizes were awarded, that specific fish ended up winning. And so um, after the tournament, an individual came up to me and made me aware that, that the individual that had supplied that fish had actually, while he was in line to the tournament, well back from where we could actually see him, he had been um, bouncing the, the redfish on his nose on the cooler, on a hard surface cooler, in order to bust the nose and make it to where oh that fish would actually measure 28 as opposed to the oversized, over 28 that he actually was. Uh-huh. Wow. That that was my first experience with tournament fraud. And uh and so, you know, I became more aware and a little bit more cautious and a little bit more uh diligent in trying to examine fish to see if there was anything involved. I had another tournament later in my career and we had an individual who had stuffed ice down a trout's mouth in order to fill his belly and increase his weight. Mm-hmm. So that way he seemed like a bigger fish. That one I caught, um, huh. you know, just from experience. And, and he didn't look right and he didn't feel right. So, you know, I was able to detect that. Yeah. But, you know, our experiences, and that's just me. So you can imagine game wardens over the state have have witnessed these violations and such. And we had a law in the books for fraud in freshwater tournaments. So it only applied to freshwater and it didn't fully encapsulate, it didn't cover all the instances that we were now seeing. Mm-hmm. 
so whenever it came to uh, the legislature, uh, we had a certain group of wardens who realized that this really, well, I'd, I'd say the majority of wardens knew that this needed to be fixed, but we had a, a core couple that really did a great job in, in addressing the legislature and testifying on this this bill that came up, and, and it adjusted uh, our fraud and, and freshwater fishing tournaments to cover all tournaments, and it covered any adjustment in weight or length or you know, excessive number of fish or type of fish caught, you know, if there was any criteria that, that a tournament set up and somebody caught something in violation of that and presented in the tournament, it was going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, our new law, and I say that new, it's from 2011, that law had provisions by which it's a violation to for somebody to provide a tournament participant with a fish, whether that be for sale or just even giving. Mm-hmm. that they know a participant is going to represent as theirs. It's a violation for the participant to accept the fish or solicit the fish. And then it's also, um, you know, it, it's a violation on its own for an individual to represent a fish that either they caught outside of the tournament, outside their, their specified timelines, or um, in violation that they know is violation. So it's a violation for somebody to present a fish that is it is uh, outside the, the rules and regulations of the tournament. Uh-huh. And then it's a violation to alter the length or weight. And then it's a violation to enter, as I said before, a, a, a fish that is in violation of any provision of the code or proclamation that we have set up. Sure. Um, and uh, how much stricter were the new laws in place in uh, 2011 than, than the previous? Because I, I do know that it is a third-degree felony if you're caught in violation uh, if the prize money is uh, $10,000 or more. That is correct. Um, initially, if it's if the prize monies are beneath that, if, the, the, if they don't meet that $10,000 threshold, then the violation is a Class A misdemeanor, which holds a uh, penalty of not less than $500 but not more than $4,000. And it could have a, a confinement in jail not to exceed one year, mm-hmm. or they can combine to where it's it's the imprisonment and the fine. So it's it's substantial, you know. It's it's and it, it's a matter of you know you're depriving other people who honestly entered that tournament to participate for a prize. You are depriving them of that ability yeah. because of your cheating. And some of these people also use this as a career. You know, they 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 are professional fishermen anglers, and they use this this these tournaments, especially on the bass circuit, for you know, to supplement their income. So you are depriving somebody of their living. Yeah. So, uh, you know, with that, I think the legislature, you know, understood what impact this was having. So they, they increased the penalties. Uh-huh. And then the third-degree felony, I mean, that that's a uh, – I don't know how much jail time you can do, but to, I have read recently to, guys right, are going to, to jail ten, for it. Right, two to ten years. Wow, okay. Wow, so substantial. Do you think it's deterred the amount of uh, folks out there who are contemplating – possibly um, breaking a rule here or there, thinking nobody will notice? I believe so. I, I think it's had a very positive impact. And, and again, uh, the majority of folks know that this is out there, but it's, it never hurts to reinforce that with, with reminding that there is a very sen- serious penalty to violating this law. Mm-hmm. And they need to remember the impact that they have on everybody within that tournament. Um, and this is a way to deter those folks that are the bad actors. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, going back to the 80s, I mean, there this was something that was very widespread. Even, like, um, I was doing a little research. There was a, 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 a tournament fishing ring of folks who were cheating from Texas all the way to Florida. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one guy ended up getting caught. He ended up killing himself. I mean, because oh, no. you are, you're ostracized by your peers at this point because you're no longer a peer. You're, you're a cheater. Most of these uh, tournaments, probably all of them, uh, will ban you for life. What about as far as losing your fishing license? So that's set up by the judge. Um, uh-huh. but, you know, we don't deprive you of that. Yes, you've you've committed an offense. You've committed a very serious offense. But uh, but we do not have a provision within this regulation banning you from fishing in the future. Mm-hmm. As you said, you know, very often within the fishing community, that's already taken care of, and within the tournaments, they get they get banned from participating. You know, and and I hate to hear that anybody has taken their life due to a violation of the law. I would hope that that anybody understands that. You know, this is this is something that you have done a bad act, and then you have accepted your penalty, and you can drive on from that. Um, you know, in any case, you know, we nobody's perfect, but sure. on this, this is this is an egregious violation. You know, it it does impact a multitude of people, but yeah. um, but with that, you know, there is a penalty associated, and and once that's satisfied, so long as you don't do it again, you're good to go. Well, and just some of the other ways that folks have tried to cheat that you've you know, maybe haven't seen personally, but I mean, there's the classic people will uh, shove lead weights down a bass's throat, um, you know, to increase the weight. And then something that uh, just a friend of mine who runs a a local bass club tournament, a Wednesday night deal here in the North Texas area, they recently came across some uh, 55 gallon drums that had been sunk in the water. An angler found them, uh, which, you know, usually the intent there is someone's keeping bass and they're going and you know, fetching them, uh, that they, you know, they've caught them before the tournament, during the tournament, they sneak over there, put them in their live well, and then weigh them in. Uh, so, and I've seen stuff, you know, from other states even where people routinely do that. Absolutely. You know, we've had, we've had folks that have used traps to hold fish prior to the tournament that they've caught whenever they were scouting out areas and such. Uh, we've also had it to where, uh, in some of the bass tournaments and other tournaments, they've cut the tails. To try and ensure that oh, they yeah, were... the Sealy Big Bass Splash on Lake Fork just this last October, a guy uh, cut cut a tail to try to get in uh, under the, uh, I guess there's obviously a slot limit on Lake Fork. <laughs> the game wardens were Johnny on the spot and busted him. Well, and, you know, that's one thing is that I would say that not only is it a violation for a tournament director to know or a tournament participant or... Um, one of the volunteers within the tournament or paid workers. But if the tournament, any any sponsors or, or anybody that works for the tournament knows of a violation, that is yet another offense if they do not contact law enforcement. However, I've been to the Sealy tournament myself, and they are very cooperative. And actually, they request law enforcement presence so that, that way any violations detected, whether it is uh, fraud in the fishing tournament or any other miscellaneous violations can be dealt with immediately and can be addressed uh, appropriately. Mm-hmm. So, you know, most tournaments are, are very good about that and try to let us know ahead of time if they're going to be holding an event so that, that way, you know, we can try to be uh, present and assist them. Awesome. Well, we certainly appreciate uh, you guys looking out for all the honest folks out there who represent 99% of the, uh, the hunters and anglers uh, out there. Um, one other thing I was going to hit on is, and it's sad that it, it's come to this, but you know, there's local bass clubs all over Texas, all all over the United States. Uh, and and back to my friend who runs a, a small one here, a Wednesday night deal in the North Texas area, uh, they have to use a polygraph every week. You know, that's uh, if you place in the money, you're getting polygraphed. And I know the majority of of bass clubs have to do that as well. We hate 
to see that that's the reality. But I guess at the end of the day, that 1%, uh, you know, it's not fair for them to be cheating the good folks out of, uh, of the prestige of winning. And, and sometimes, you know, there's a significant paycheck that goes along with that. Absolutely. And the thing is, is that I would see the, the polygraph is very much what an officer's presence does is it's a proactive deterrent. Mm-hmm. You know, just for the most part is those folks that know that they're going to go into a polygraph situation. It doesn't deter all. Some believe that they can, you know, outwit it or whatever. But but for a lot of folks, that is a solid deterrent. So I would say, again, not only does the regulation, and it's actually a statute, but not only does the statute help deter this kind of behavior, this unlawful behavior of fraud in tournaments, but then I would say that the polygraph really, for the most part, is a proactive deterrent as well. Mm-hmm. Every time I see someone's caught cheating in a bass tournament, I'm I'm just like, really? People are still trying to do that? Uh, you're going to get caught. And if you do get caught, you know, it, it probably wasn't the first time you cheated. Maybe you got away with it once or twice, but at the end of the day, uh, it's it's certainly not worth it. Uh, just from being outcast from the sport that you you know you love, that would be the most uh, that, that would be the the biggest detractor for me personally. I agree, and so. and you know as we go along, our wardens have so much experience with this that they're very good at detecting. Uh-huh. So I I think again is that. While they may get away with it once, I don't know that they'll ever get away with it twice. Yeah. So uh, they're, they're, our wardens are really good at, at detecting those violations. Well, we certainly appreciate all you do, and thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today. Thank you for your time. Well, there she goes, Assistant Commander Brandy Reeder of our Texas Game Warden Division. I uh, certainly appreciate her jumping on today. That segment, by the way, brought to you by Rudy's Barbecue and the Stillwaters Ranch in Llano, Texas. I had the pleasure of hunting down there uh, this past whitetail season, and my friend Clayton Leverett is offering a trophy package right now, any buck, up to 199 inches for the flat rate of seven grand. So none of that pay-by-the-inch trophy fee stuff that you see on other ranches. It's just a flat rate. And, of course, seven grand is a lot of money, but when you factor in the cost of your lease, the cost of fuel, the cost of feed, it all adds up. So... If you're looking for a lot less hassle, but still an opportunity to take a great buck, go to thestillwatersranch.com. Well, let's knock out a break here. Up next, we'll take a look at the history of feral hog introduction and expansion, not only in Texas, but in the southern part of the United States. There's a lot more to it than you might think. That's coming up next only on DSC's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Texas woman, I love we all love fishing, but private water fishing makes the experience even more enjoyable. Private means private, and when you reserve one of over 50 private lakes, that means you're the only one on the water. Lakes are stocked and professionally managed to grow big bass, and most have boats on site at no charge. You'll catch bigger numbers and bigger fish than on public water. Silence, solitude, and no crowds. It's a great way to introduce kids and grandkids into the outdoors. Visit privatewaterfishing.com to become a member today. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The System Hog Trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The system is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. 
Hey, North Texas sports fans. This is Brian Spagnola, general manager of Texas Motor Cars in Addison. My family's been in the car business for over 50 years, and I want to show you the difference in buying from a family-owned and operated business. TexasMotorCars.com is an awesome website that lets you do virtually all of your shopping online. We have a professional photographer that takes amazing photos, and we give you all the information that you'll need up front. You can even find out how much we will give you for your trade-in before you ever come in. I take pride in the fact you can come in, choose a car, and be out in less than an hour. We have financing rates starting at 1.79% on pre-owned vehicles and can help almost anybody. Please do yourself a favor. If you're in the market for a pre-owned vehicle of any kind, give us a shot. Let me show you how easy buying a vehicle should be. Visit TexasMotorCars.com or come visit our 20,000-square-foot indoor showroom in Addison. Again, visit TexasMotorCars.com or call us at 1-888-9-TX-MOTORS. He said he ain't no hound, he's a black mouth cur. He'll do what you got in mind. He gonna tree any coon or catch any hog, pin any steer in sight. He'll watch over your youngins and defend them until he breathes his last breath. Now I've seen a few dogs in my day, but I ain't seen nothing quite like them yet. Black Mouth Curves, the name of that one from Justin Bowerman, bringing us back on Dallas Safari Club's Lone Star Outdoors show, brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. I'm Cable Smith, riding shotgun with you today. Thanks for being here. Uh, man, we are about to get into a fascinating topic. Everybody knows we have a serious issue when it comes to feral hogs, uh, not just in Texas, but uh, throughout the southern half of the United States. And... The question was asked by a listener. Uh, he wanted to know who's responsible for bringing these hogs here. How'd they get here? Uh, specifically, he was talking about Texas. And so I've done a little research and found someone who has a lot more knowledge on the subject than myself. So we're going to dive into that next. But first, this segment is brought to you by Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Grab a 12-pack on your way to the lake this summer and celebrate Full stringers with an ice-cold Lone Star beer. Lone Star beer, the national beer of Texas. Um, okay, well, let's go ahead now and uh, bring on our next guest. He's actually retired from Texas Parks and Wildlife, uh, but in his days spent a lot of time working with feral hogs and had the most comprehensive publication regarding the history of feral hogs in Texas that uh, I'd ever come across. So it's my pleasure to welcome a certified wildlife biologist, uh, retired from Texas Parks and Wildlife, Rick Taylor. Thanks for being here, man. You bet. You bet. My pleasure. It was great to have you with us. Uh, so, you know, obviously we're, we're going to talk feral hogs today. But before we do that, uh, talk a little bit about your time at Texas Parks and Wildlife. I know that uh, you're retired, but uh, how long did you work for uh, the department and uh, what exactly did you do there? Okay, I uh, I started with the department, I think, in 81. I spent, 20, I believe, 27 years with Parks and Wildlife. Uh started out in Bay City, Matagorda County, uh, for about a year or so, then moved to Gonzales County, where I worked there for five years before I transferred over to Uvalde County, which is where I retired out of. Primary responsibilities during that time was to uh, monitor the wildlife populations in about a five-county area. Mm -hmm. uh, conduct the deer surveys, you know, bird surveys, whatever need to be done. Work with landowners was a primary job also. And also, 
you know, conducted research whenever that opportunity rose. And uh, one of the research projects that I was involved in was working with uh, feral hogs back before it really got to be as popular as it is now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yes, you had some background there with uh, feral hogs. Uh and I had a listener actually ask me to research the history of feral hogs for, you know, a segment on the show. And uh, luckily for him and for me, uh, you are already did that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why we wanted to visit with you today. You, you had a really in-depth publication, Feral Hogs in Texas. And it's you can, you can uh, find it on the Texas Parks and Wildlife website if people want to look at it. When, uh, when did you release that? Ah. Uh, believe that came out in the late 80s or early 90s i'm not i don't really remember mm-hmm. uh on that because that is just a you know more or less a, a parks and wildlife uh, pamphlet publication i believe it came after i conducted all the research on food habits and uh reproductive biology of them mm-hmm. so i think it was in the early 90s something like that but since then i've i mean I've been obsessed with these pigs for a long time, and so I do extensive amounts of research. I love just reading about the history about them, and, and I've got files and files of, of uh, historical information on on them. So it, it, it's really fat. They're really a fascinating creature, in my opinion. Oh, sure. Myself, like most of our listeners out there, just love hunting them. It's great. Uh, yeah, they're a nuisance, obviously, especially if you're the landowner, but... Let's be honest. Who doesn't like having something to hunt year round? Yeah, it's it's there's a love hate relationship depending on what you know what side of the fence you're standing on. You sure. know, a lot of people you know love them, a lot of people cuss them. You know, it it all depends on you know person's perspective on how they feel about them. They definitely can do some damage, but if you, but they can also be a a positive aspect if you utilize it as such. Oh sure, yeah. I think a lot of people just love to cuss them too. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on both sides of the fence there, too. You know, as someone who has a, a lease predominantly for white-tailed deer hunting, uh, you know, I don't care for it when the hogs run the deer off. But then, you know, I was out there last week with something to shoot at. So, uh, you know, like you said, it is a love-hate relationship. Um, right. But this, this piece that you released, actually, you, know, you said this could be, well, 15, 20 years old by now, but... Uh, as far as the history of the feral hog, how they got to Texas, that hasn't changed. Um, so that's what I wanted to talk about today because it is fascinating. Here's a non-native species that everyone in Texas, if you're interested in the outdoors and have spent any time in the outdoors, you've probably come across feral hogs. Uh, so right. how did they get here? And um, just you know, kind of summarizing your, your piece here, it looks like there's really three different stages of introduction and the first one started way back, uh, you know, 300 years ago, and I'll let you talk about that one. Well, the first hogs that actually came to the States were came in the late 1500s or early 1500s. The Hernandez de Soto brought the first ones in around 1540, mm-hmm. 1539. And as he tramped across southeastern United States, he ended up uh, getting himself killed by his own soldiers in Arkansas. And uh, a guy named Luis de Moscoso took control of the expedition in 1542 and crossed into Texas up, uh, you know, below Fort Worth, back in that area, and started making their way across. I, I believe he had several hundred hogs in that expedition. They came in, they crossed somewhere, you know, below Fort Worth, but stories say that by the time they reached that area is when the prairies opened up and the hogs were foraging naturally 
on uh, acorns and and vegetation stuff. But when they reach the prairies, there's no more food for them. So he, so Muscoso had to turn around and and go back. Where when he got back to the Mississippi, you know, he built him a boat and kind of headed on down the river into Mexico. You know, that kind of sums up the first introduction. Uh-huh. Okay. Later on, LaSalle came and established a fort on the coast when he tried to find uh, the mouth of the Mississippi and ended up, you know, down, you know, around uh, Refugio, back in there, Matagord Island. Uh, and anyway, he missed the Mississippi River, you know, pretty good ways. And that was in, I believe, the late 1600 or so. And he brought a bunch of pigs with him at that time. Okay. And that was uh, another time. Of course, the Indians at the time supposedly didn't like him. They called him the dogs of the French. <laughs> but really, really, the what I feel is the main import came when uh, when settlers started really coming in in the early 1800s to, you know, 1820s to 1830s. A lot of the settlers brought hogs that time it was a good meat source reproduction was good fat bacon yeah they're they're very prolific so they served a very very good purpose for the settlers and there were no fences at the time so they were allowed to you know just free range and whenever a seller would want them they just go and round them up and the ones they wanted and butcher them and leave the others out there mm-hmm. so naturally a lot of them would become free ranging yeah okay and then I understand in just reading your thing here, when the you know the Texas War for Independence really started ratcheting up, a lot of folks abandoned their home or you know wherever they had uh, put down roots because of the violence, and so obviously the wildlife was left there, and that's when a lot of these hogs really uh, went from you know domestic stock to completely wild. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, whenever Santa Ana was marching across Texas, uh, what they called the runaway scrape, when a lot of the early settlers at that time, they just left their farms and uh, just left, and they couldn't take any animals with them. So they just left a lot of their stock there to, to free range, and a lot of those, you know, escaped, and, you know, probably many of those became viable populations in the wild. And they with very few natural predators, you know, it didn't take a whole lot other than disease, which disease takes quite a few of them back in the day. But, you know, they're probably, that's probably when the start of them actually became free range, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Okay, so fascinating stuff there, how a, a war actually has a lot to do with this endemic uh, feral hog issue we have today. Um, right, and, and the the... the spread of them you know like i said diseases kept a lot of them in check uh you know there wasn't a lot of predators but really the the crux of it pretty much came as time expanded of course you know the majority of them now the population exploded but a lot of them has to do with with uh good habitat management everything we've done for animal husbandry has made it better on the hogs whether it be disease eradication uh, you know, water distribution, habitat management, everything we've done has just made a perfect storm, you might say, for hogs. And, of course, you've got a lot of hunters also that over the last 20 or 30 years decide they want some extra hunting species, so they'll go to the they'd go to the livestock barn and grab some pigs and throw them out, yeah. which just further supplemented the, the population. I, I think that if we wouldn't have been dumping pigs out over the last 20 or 30 years, we probably would still wouldn't have that much of a number. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, and, and just backing up, though, because there is one other little introduction of uh, feral hogs here in the Lone Star State, and that was the European, or as a lot of people call them, the Russian boar. And I believe that was actually, you know, folks introduced those for sole purpose of hunting, you know, sport hunting, uh, back in the 1930s or so was when that started. Yeah, there were two basic introductions. Uh, some were on the coast uh, down there, uh, around Austwell, I believe, uh, you know, back, um, southeast, you know, Port Lavaca or, or, uh, Calhoun County, I believe, Port Lavaca, somewhere in that area on some big ranches and also in the hill country where they'd taken some from the, I think San Antonio Zoo and some other place and released them. Now they were supposedly in controlled environments, but we know how that worked out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, hunters still shoot these big, huge hogs that, you know, look like more of a Russian species, but I doubt at this point there's any really 100% Russian hogs or, you know, European boars running around. Well, what what you have to understand is there's really no biological difference between the two species. Mm-hmm. You know, they were separated, at, you know, you, you know, I don't know, millions or thousands of years ago, you know, where they were domesticated, but they're the same genetic makeup. So what happens is if you have a wild hog and through generations and time, he will revert back to that European appearance, mm-hmm. you know, the survival of the fittest. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I said, DNA testing, there are basically no difference, although morphologically there are some differences as far as the structure and, and size and all. So, you know, they'll get that more sloped appearance, the longer snout, smaller hands, you know, but through time, you know, even your domestic pigs will kind of revert back through generations and generations of time. They will revert back to that European, more or less, appearance, which is what everybody calls it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's interesting there. So, uh, and a hog is a hog is a hog, but I certainly thought there was, like, some difference between the European and, and then, you know, what I would say I have on my deer lease most of the time. Right. Yeah. That's and they're still. I mean, but but don't get me wrong. There are European wild boar. I mean, I you know you get over in in actually in Europe, and Germany, and Austria, and some of those places there are. Yeah. You know, but if you you know, but if you put them in a pen and start domesticating and breeding them, you know, you'll start breeding them into the fat pigs that you know domestic pigs, and vice versa. You know, if you take some here and you put them in the in the pen and and uh, you know through generations. I'm not talking about you know, three or four generations or 10 years, you know, it just takes a lot of time for those animals sure. to revert back. Yeah. Yeah. But Well, Rick, as far as their distribution goes today, and I mean, mind you, this is a lot, it's a lot different than when it was back in the late eighties and early nineties when you first, you know, put this, uh, this little publication together, but feral hogs are now found in over 240 of Texas, 254 counties. Right, that's great. Yep, they're pretty much everywhere from the Davis Mounds to Big Bend. I mean, really, there's very few areas they're not. Yeah, the old thought process was that you know that the habitat has to be good. You know, cold weather would hold them back. Droughts would, you know, dry desert country would hold them back. Well, that's they're in Canada now, and they're in the desert Southwest. You know, they're pretty much everywhere. So. Uh, if they're not there, give them some time. They probably will be before <laughs> right. too long. Right. Well, uh, hunters kill upwards of seventy-five hundred thousand of them in Texas every year. Uh, might even be more than that. And like we said, they can be a real pain. But also, you know, it's a love-hate relationship. And uh, to be honest with you, I 
I'm glad they're around um, as a hunter. And, and, and I mean, they're delicious too. So as someone who likes to eat what I shoot, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't despise feral hogs like some people. And uh, I did find your, your piece uh, interesting and certainly appreciate you coming on the show today to kind of give us a, a history of, you know, how we got to where we are today regarding this uh, invasive species. Well, you bet. And I would say that, that coming out this fall, if you don't mind me mentioning oh, sure. it, I do have a, uh, a book coming out entitled, entitled On Wild Hogs and Javelinas by Safari Press. And uh, it will cover all aspects from biology to management to history to control methods, uh, everything up to date, you know, as far as whether there's any kind of toxins available or, you know, aerial gunning, night vision, I mean, you name it, you know, try to cover, you know, every aspect of it. So it'll be, uh, hopefully it'll be a useful publication for everybody. And I look forward for it to, you know, coming out. Okay. And that'll be out this fall? That's correct. It's uh, actually it's being printed right as we speak, and so hopefully it'll be out, you know, within a few months, Perfect. definitely before the end of the year. Well, I'll look forward to getting my hands on a copy. You bet. You bet. We certainly appreciate your time today. Great stuff. All right. Thank you. Take care. So there he goes, retired Texas Parks and Wildlife biologist Rick Taylor. Uh, be on the lookout for his upcoming book on feral hogs and javelina this fall. Uh, we certainly appreciate him dropping by, uh, man, we've got to go, got to get out of here, uh, up against the clock, and we are flat out of time. So thanks to Rick as well as our other guest today, uh, Brandy Reeder, Assistant Commander for our Texas Parks and Wildlife Game Warden Division. Also Brian Davenport of Finn and Fowl Outfitters and Michael Gukins of the RMEF Texas, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, a great organization. Check them out. Uh, thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you the listener for being a part of Dallas Safari Club's Lone Star Outdoors show. We'll do it again same time, same place next week. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying y'all have a great week in the outdoors. And the liquor store lights shine so bright like a mother calling you home. Last dollar on the table, you're being labeled. You're sitting there alone. Tried, you tried, you cried, you fight, your head feels like a stone. When it all comes down, no, and you can't do it alone.